This podcast is brought to you by eGauge Systems, advanced, affordable, and reliable energy monitoring. The eGauge is a data logger, web server, and energy meter in one device. With revenue-grade accuracy, eGauge can be used to optimize efficiency and for solar monitoring and sub-metering. Learn more at eGauge.net. For the week of June 11, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for being here this week. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. Also in Washington is Catherine Hamilton. She's a clean energy policy expert and a partner with 38 North Solutions. Catherine, aside from EPA regs, what is happening in your world? Well, there is nothing like being married to a New York Rangers fan right now. Um, I have, We have been chained to the television as the Rangers have lost three games in a row to the L.A. Kings. I'm hoping it will turn around, but it's going to be a long slog. <laughs> I understand you are a former hockey player, too. I was. I played growing up, and I did. I, uh, I went to Cornell, so we, of course, uh, slept out for tickets every year, and I played a bunch of intramurals up there. Um, but it's still not quite the same as being uh, wrapped up in the cup. <laughs> I used to play a little intramural hockey myself. I used to play men's league, beer league, as we call it. I wasn't very good, but I do love hockey. Also, in Washington this week, usually in New York, but coming back to his home turf in D.C., it's Jigger Shaw. He's a partner at Clean Fleet Investors and the author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger, have you created any new climate wealth lately? <laughs> no, but I have been watching the 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 cup. I uh live in New York now, so everyone's got, you know, Rangers fever. But uh, I'm also really good friends with uh Hall of Fame goalie uh Mike Richter, who's who's now joined the uh clean tech uh movement. In what way? He started a company called Healthy Planet Partners that's deployed about I think thirty million dollars now into the renewable energy industry in terms of project finance and I think they're doing about a hundred million more this year. So, who would have thought that the hockey conversation had some relevancy in clean tech? All right, look at that. Look at that. <laughs> well, speaking of your book, creating climate wealth, I'm pleased to say that I rolled out my own book project this week. It was a much shorter ebook, actually, uh, looking at the legacy of Hurricane Sandy in the utility sector, and it's called Resiliency. How Superstorm Sandy Changed America's Grid. You can find it by going over to greentechmedia.com, and we will be linking to it in our podcast show notes. And that is our first topic this week. We're going to be talking about how power companies responded to the storm a year and a half later. And joining us from North Carolina to talk about the subject is our guest, Gary Ratcliffe. He is the vice president of ABB's North American Smart Grid Business. Hey, Gary, welcome to the Energy Game. Good to have you on. Thanks, Stephen. And I know that you and Catherine know each other pretty well, correct? Actually, we do. This, this uh, dates back to the Gridwise Alliance when Kath, Catherine was president and I was ABB's uh, representative uh, to the alliance. So we've known each other for a few years. Catherine, can you attest to uh, Gary's credibility? Absolutely. He's one of my favorite people. <laughs> <laughs> now, maybe Catherine will share the last time we met. Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't remember what happened. Oh, I was like walking down a street in D.C., and there was Gary Ratcliffe crossing the street. I almost tripped over him. I feel like D.C. is such a small town. That happens quite a bit, more than I thought it would happen when I moved here. 
Well, Gary and I know each other from my reporting on this ebook. He was one of my sources who described how a grid giant like ABB sees the world changing after Hurricane Sandy. I do need to offer some disclosure here. ABB owns the industrial operational software company Ventix, which underwrote the ebook project. Uh, but in our first segment, we're going to chat with Gary about how extreme weather is driving technology adoption and utility planning. Then we'll move on to another monumental event for utilities, coming EPA carbon regulations for the nation's fleet of power plants. Are they ambitious enough? Will they kill coal? We will discuss. In our third segment, we'll talk storage. Last week, the Energy Storage Association held its annual conference in D.C., and we will look at what 2014 will bring for this budding industry. And at the end of the show, we will tell you something you do not know. Let's talk Sandy. So there's this moment in the ebook when uh, I was talking to PSE&G CEO Ralph Izzo, and he explains the sudden impact of Sandy. As the storm closed in on New Jersey, Izzo actually thought that the utility had avoided a worst-case scenario. And then at around 8 p.m., the world as we knew it had come to an end, he said. And soon 85% of PSE&G's power customers were cut off. And I found that comment to be pretty profound. Izzo was talking about the world ending in the context of the outage. But it was also true for the era of extreme weather preparedness. In my interviews, a lot of utility executives and and others felt that after Sandy uh, and Hurricane Irene and a few other storms that caused massive outages around that same time, that after that, we were entering a new, more extreme world. And that new world means new investment opportunities for modernizing the grid. And it also means new regulatory approaches to planning for the future. So that's what we're talking about. And, and Gary, to start off here, what, in your opinion, was the big technology legacy of Sandy and the preceding events on the East Coast? How does a company like ABB view that changed world? Well, I think there were some major changes that occurred as a result of Sandy and uh, some of the major drivers one one thing that I think the utilities struggled with, and some of the New York utilities maybe to a greater extent, was the issue of situational awareness, having an accurate view of what was happening to their system, where the damage was occurred, and how many customers were impacted. But more importantly, being able to communicate to the customers when they would have their uh, power restored and, and have accurate predictions available. Also, managing and providing information to mutual aid crews who are coming in to assist so that those crews could be as efficient as possible working with uh, the utility crews that were involved as well as other first responders from the government. So I think that whole concept of knowing what's going on with the grid, which customers are out, what damage has occurred, and how best to restore the grid and keep track of that progress was one of the key drivers that came out of Sandy. Gary, I mean, I I'm trying to understand where the utilities are in their thought process of deploying this technology. Um, you know, the Obama administration provided Recovery Act stimulus to do exactly this for Chattanooga um, with distribution automation. Huge success when the derecho came through that affected D.C. disproportionately. Um, Chattanooga was up and running um, far faster because they actually could figure out what's happening at each circuit. I was talking to somebody at Con Ed the other day. He told me that the um, average cost uh, to figure out where the faults were were $9 per phone call because they didn't have this automation uh, deployed, so they really didn't know who was out and who wasn't out. I'm just trying to understand. I mean, if Chattanooga got this done in 2011, 
Where's everyone else on the East Coast? Uh, a lot of the ARRA funding went to smart meters, and utilities had OMS systems, but now the work is to expand OMS into advanced distribution management systems and to integrate the AMI systems to, to these advanced distribution management systems. That work is not nearly complete yet. So, Gary, um, when you think about how a utility has to invest uh, in, in purchasing all this type of equipment, the, the body that approves that investment are the regulators. So my question to you is, is do you see regulators moving on this um, to, to be able to approve investments and actually attach a monetary value to the ability for utilities to become more resilient? I think, Catherine, you hit on the biggest challenge. Uh, there is value to automating systems and investing in this information, this, this IT infrastructure combined with the operational systems. It does make the utility more efficient in its restoration, cuts overtime costs, cuts windshield time related to a storm restoration. But it doesn't completely cover the costs. And therein lies the challenge, which is the regulators need to assign a value to improve reliability for the end-use customers to enable the funding for these technologies to be deployed. And this has to be done on a state-by-state basis. You know, one of the things that I outline in the book is the value of distributed energy, the potential value of distributed energy, because there are very few examples of distributed energy playing a big role here. Obviously, the big one was combined heat and power that may have been part of islandable microgrids that kept colleges and universities up and running or co-ops up and running. And the reliability of these systems was very high. But when you look at a technology like solar, for example, many solar customers in New Jersey were surprised that their systems weren't working because they were grid-tied and they didn't have any battery backup. What we are seeing different now is small deployments of battery backup systems for solar and potentially create a new set of technologies that can help make homes and businesses more resilient. On top of that, we're looking at potential a surge in microgrid development where you're not just talking about small CHP-based systems, but actual virtual power plants with uh, potential solar and batteries and wind and diesel generators uh, or CHP all mixed in, a variety of different technologies. So the big question here is, how is that influencing utility adoption. Historically, utilities thought about smart grid investments in terms of outage management here in the U.S. In Europe, they've, they've thought about these technologies in terms of distributed energy management. And now what we've seen is that utilities are shifting and thinking about adoption to integrate more distributed resources. How are you seeing that shift take place, Gary? Um, I guess a couple of different ways. Certainly there is a trend towards solar PV, and I do know that uh, many residential customers are somewhat surprised to find that if there's an outage on their feeder, they can't actually take advantage of having their rooftop solar. So you do need to have a microgrid uh, technology which allows the, the, the consumer to separate from the grid, in which case then they would be able to use their solar. But normally to make that uh, more reliable or more efficient, it needs to be coupled with battery energy storage. And that's probably the simplest form of a microgrid, uh, a system which can separate from 
the feeder to which it's tied whenever an outage occurs and operate off-grid. And then when under blue sky conditions, it, the microgrid can be connected to the grid and the renewable energy can be fed in if there's a surplus amount of energy that's not being consumed. Uh, you had mentioned other examples which have been around for a number of years, combined heat and power. Again, the critical uh, item there is, is it a microgrid in terms of being able to separate from the grid if the feeder to which the, you know, the facility is connected uh, has its power interrupted? And I think that's where some of the success stories that you outlined in your ebook um, were able to, to be to be utilized. A number of different, I think, critical buildings, critical facilities. I think there was a small campus or a community where they had either combined heat and power or dedicated uh, fuel cell or on-site generation, and the ability to separate from the grid gave them a higher level of resiliency. I think we're going to see that. Uh, expand uh, in the future, and I think we'll also see not only the fossil fuel or combined heat and power, but that will be supplemented with renewables such as solar and also energy storage. Gary, I'm sorry to interrupt you there. I, I'm just trying to understand, you know, that ABB has been a real champion and a real leader in microgrids, but to me, the real reason why microgrids aren't going to take off is because of the ridiculous standby charges that are charged by most utilities to precisely calculate what the savings to the customer will be so that these you know, uh, microgrids are not really cost savers for customers. Do you think you guys will have any chances of getting rid of these uh, usuria standby charges? Um, I mean, that's a regulatory issue in terms of how the rates are structured and, and set. Commercial and larger users of energy do have different demand charges and or standby charges associated with their facilities. That's not as relevant for residential customers who don't see that. But one of the concerns that utilities have is microgrids uh, that you know take advantage of capacity to, to a great extent, so they're paying for infrastructure, but they're not delivering kilowatt hours to, to be able to offset that. So you get into issues such as decoupled rates, you get into issues such as standby, uh, you know, costs uh, for certainly for the larger customers, and that's going to have to be sorted out at, uh, at the state regulatory level. But that seems like a mixed signal, right? I mean, at, on the one hand, we're saying that microgrids, distributed generation, and all this automation is a good thing for ratepayers. But at the same time, we're telling regulators that, oh, you know, you should actually put these usuria standby charges on folks because we sort of want, you know, folks to maybe be able to compete with the utility, but maybe not for grid hardening. I'm just trying to figure out how this isn't sending a mixed message to you to regulators. Yeah, I actually think, um, so Jigger has a great point that the energy settlement rules and the interconnection rules are going to need to be kind of clarified as we get new technologies on the grid. But I've just been um, engaging in the New Jersey um, RFP, which is for energy storage to back up solar, and they don't have very much money for this. And it, be it becomes quite clear that they're only going to be able to fund a few projects, and it's going to be at locations um, like police stations and a few gas stations, things that are considered kind of emergency points for people that they found were really desperately needed when Sandy hit. Um, so my sense is we're, in addition to to trying to come, come up with some regulatory constructs, we're also going to need to come up with some financial models, some business models that are really going to work and be able to monetize um, resilience for, for investors. And, of course, New York is attempting to do that. So, Catherine, 
I conducted over 40 interviews for this book, and every single person I talked to said, yes, we are in a different world. Regardless of whether utilities are making super aggressive investments, they are talking about this in a different way since Sandy, and not just East Coast utilities. Utilities uh, in the Midwest are thinking about more extreme rainstorms and flooding. Utilities on the West Coast are thinking about wildfires and drought and extreme heat. Uh, in the Southeast, extreme heat and drought for cooling. What's your perception of how things have changed, Catherine? How material is this? Yeah. I, and first of all, I need to give a shout out to your book. It is really, really good. And I think anybody who listens to this needs to read this book. It's really well written and it tells a very good story. And I think you're right on with the way you're going with the book and with this question, which is that utilities really are thinking differently. Um, they are constrained by the regulatory construct. So a lot of them are using their unregulated arms to invest. A lot of them are partnering with companies like ABB who can invest. And I always think of ABB as a company that kind of sees around the the corner before anybody else and makes these stealth, brilliant investments that then everybody realizes everyone else should have made a long time ago. But, um, you know, I think that there's going to be a lot more partnering involved um, because utilities really do have to overcome a lot of the regulatory restrictions that they currently have. Jigger, you're, you tend to be a pessimist about this. What's your perception on how things have changed, particularly since you have a perch there in New York and you've watched some of those regulatory issues evolve? Well, I think it's an enormous fight. I mean, I think the utility companies, as witnessed by PSENG's um, desire to, you know, to really raise rates in New Jersey for this grid hardening, um, is that on the one hand, utilities absolutely need to make investments to be able to harden the grid for these storms and to become more resilient. But on the other hand, the utilities have made promises, many of them before, um, without following through on them, and no one's held them accountable. I mean, a lot of these smart grids, for instance, haven't created the the reduction in um, energy um, uh, that that they promised. On top of that, they haven't actually integrated all of that data as they promised they would into doing some of these other services. And now they're asking for even more money to actually figure out how to integrate these services. And then on the other side, there are entrepreneurs, hundreds of them, that are actually working on CHP in New York and New Jersey because both areas have put in huge amounts of subsidies. And in both cases, PSE&G and Con Ed are deliberately undermining people's ability to build these projects because they're saying, well, we're not going to be transparent about what the standby charges are. You have to pay $50,000 first, and then we'll tell you what the standby charges are. And then maybe we'll actually you know, pass natural gas price volatility through the customers, but maybe we won't. And so it makes it really hard for the entrepreneurs on the ground who are selling ABB products or anybody else's products to actually get these projects completed. So, Gary, what's ABB's perspective on all this? Aside from specific types of technology adoption like advanced distribution management systems or outage management systems, how are utilities materially thinking differently? And do you think that there's some contradiction in, in their stances on these issues, or are you generally seeing them move in a positive direction? Well, overall, I think I see the utilities moving in a positive direction. I think there's 
the, the change in the environment has spurred utilities to think differently. I think they realize they need to address some of the challenges they have around aging infrastructure, how to harden their grids, uh, whether or not they should be investing in infrastructure, uh, IT infrastructure in particular at a faster rate, and then also accelerating how they integrate the different systems that they do deploy. I mean, there's advantages, as one example, there's an advantage to deploying advanced metering infrastructure, it does lower your cost, particularly truck rolls for connect and disconnect and on-demand reads. But the real value comes in terms of how can you reduce peak demand, particularly if you're a vertically integrated utility, and also how can you use the information from those meters in your operations, whether it's storm response or also optimizing the, the voltages and reactive power flow on a distribution feeder through voltvar control. So those are just some of the examples of how you can further leverage the technology. I think utilities are stepping up. I think they're moving in this direction, but the pace of the, the adoption of the, the technology and hardening of the infrastructure and making the grid more resilient will depend upon you know, the, the individual state regulations, regulatory environment, particularly at the distribution level. Um, in terms of, you know, the issue of standby charges, I understand the utility perspective where if they're the backup to combined heat and power and they're providing capacity that's not normally being used, you know, how, how, do, they, how do they get compensated for that? So there does need to be some models worked out between the, the end users, the customers who want to put in these systems, the regulators, and, and the utilities. And I think... We can work through that, but it's not an immediate fix. All right. Well, you can learn more about uh, the technologies that Gary was talking about, about uh, the role of ERA investments in leveraging some of these new communication systems in the new Green Tech Media ebook. And you can download that for free by going to our podcast show notes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Gary Ratcliffe is the vice president of ABB's North American Smart Grid Business. Gary, thanks for being on here. Good talking to you. Well, thanks, Stephen. I enjoyed uh, participating today. Thanks, Gary. Yeah, I hope I bump into you again in the streets of D.C. <laughs> thanks, Gary. Okay, I want to take a break here to recognize our sponsor, eGauge Systems, which is a manufacturer of next-generation energy meters. By combining a revenue-grade energy meter, a data logger, and web server into one fully integrated device, eGauge provides real-time access to second-by-second -second data presented on a user-friendly interface. eGauge is an ideal solution to monitor and view as many as 12 circuits, all with no ongoing fees. Applications for the eGauge meter include solar generation and building demand, sub-metering, performance contracts, lead projects, and net zero buildings. Uh, and those can apply to a wide range of industry professionals. If you're a solar installer, a portfolio manager, investor, building management professional, HVAC contractor, data aggregator, or an energy software provider, the eGauge meter is your device. Measure every moment with eGauge. To learn more, go to www.egauge.net. What did House Speaker John Boehner call absolutely crazy last week? No, it wasn't the latest climate denial statements from Tea Partiers in Congress. It was EPA's new proposed rules for limiting carbon emissions from existing power plants 30% 
by 2030. Existing plants make up about 40% of U.S. carbon emissions, so they are an important target. But is the rule really that crazy? Analysts have called them unambitious and easy to meet. NRG CEO David Crane said the rule achieves less than meets the eye. And one of the reasons is that EPA made 2005 the baseline, and emissions in the power sector are already down by around 10% since that time. However, the policy could stimulate new demand for clean energy in states that have done little to embrace the technologies thus far. So let's hear from our resident EPA expert, Catherine Hamilton, on this one, who has been diligently tracking the potential impact. Catherine, what's your opinion on the ambitiousness of EPA's plan? Yes, uh, the Speaker of the House called it nuts, I believe. Um, I don't think he read it. He, he, he called it absolutely crazy the day before and then nuts the day after. Nuts. <laughs> um, he couldn't have read it. It's it's very, um, fairly mild, I would say, and also extremely flexible, which is which is what they've been trying to do, which is they've been trying to make sure that the states are able to do what they need to do. They've set the goals for each state, you know, with with a lot of the state regional um, resource mix in mind so that, you know, states that already have, you know, a lot going on to try to clean up carbon emissions, um, you know, will will be given credit for that. They won't have they won't put so much pressure on very heavily coal based states. Yeah. So you're but, looking at a difference of like 40 percent emission reductions in New York versus 18 to 20 percent in a state like Kentucky or West Virginia. Right. Pretty pretty big disparity. Yeah, it is. And yet I think on the whole, this is going to move us to a much uh, cleaner United States, at least, um, over the next decade. And in addition to that, it's really going to change the way we invest in energy infrastructure. So this is all based on the grid rather than, say, the CAFE standards, which are based on the transportation system. So this is all about power plant emissions. And I think this is really going to make us invest differently and deploy differently. And, um, I mean, coal plants are already starting to retire. You know, they, they, they say, look, coal will still be 30 percent of our generation. Natural gas will still be 30 percent of our generation mix. Um, And so they're still sort of the big ones. But the incentives to deploy more renewables, more nuclear energy, and especially distribution technologies and efficiency are really big. And I think this is going to open up markets, create jobs, do a lot of positive things for the economy that uh, some folks are not, you know, speaking as much about. Jigger, what do you think about the clean tech portion of this? So EPA thinks that we'll install roughly 21 gigawatts of additional renewables over the baseline. Uh, I think uh, many others I've spoken to think that that's probably even conservative. You know, our research outfit suggests that we could see eight gigawatts of solar um, by 2016, 2017 without any change in policy. So we're talking about a surge that's ongoing uh, without EPA regulations. Uh, Is that 21 gigawatts conservative? Is it significant? How much does this open up new clean tech markets in states that aren't really promoting them? Well, I I agree a lot with Catherine. I mean, I'm not sure that this was the most bold thing that, that they could have put out. But I do think that our costs are coming down. Green Tech Media's prediction is, in my opinion, I think Green Tech Media is projecting 21,000 megawatts because we're just talking solar, but when you add wind and hydro and geothermal and everything else, I think we're probably there. And I think most of that's being driven by the renewable portfolio standards. But it's good to have the heavy hand of EPA on these states 
to say, we're forcing you to actually open your eyes and see how cost-effective renewables already is. And so, you know, to really push them to deploy these technologies in ways that they were reluctantly doing, but now I think they may do less reluctantly. Yeah, so I agree. It opens up some new states, but I wouldn't even call this a heavy hand. I mean, yes, politically, this is seen as a heavy hand. I I don't think that the Obama administration could probably do much more um, and and not become a public relations disaster. But if you look at what the how this actually stacks up to what we need to do it's very limited so the traditional framework for the united nations the traditional baseline is 1990 emissions and if you compare this regulatory set to 1990 baseline uh you know we could we're only cutting emissions by around 7.7%. And that baseline is what the UN uses to talk about how to stabilize emissions under 2 degrees centigrade by the middle of the century. If you look at the 17% reduction pledged by the Obama administration uh, in 2009, we're looking at only a a 5% cut compared to 1990 levels. So on a global stage, this isn't really that ambitious. With that said, not sure how much more we could do domestically, and I do think it sends a pretty positive signal internationally. This is an important negotiating chip. Yeah, and I also think if you look at – it's not like this is just what we're going to do. If you start shifting your investments and you start giving more value to clean energy technologies, then that's where the money is going to go, and that's where people are going to realize – that where the wealth lies, as, as Jigger says. And so it's not as if this is going to be static. I think that all this is going to do is open up the floodgates for more wealth to be created on the clean energy side. Yeah, I agree with Catherine. I, I understand where you're coming from, Stephen, and I, I agree that they could have been far more bold. But I think that when you think about the process that this puts in place, the reason I say it's heavy-handed is every single state now has to spend real money figuring out what their compliance plan is going to be. And I think what they're going to find, and this is what NRDC at least hopes, is that energy efficiency and renewables will be a far cheaper way of meeting the standard than natural gas. Um, I think that, you know, EPA was shocking to me was how revealing EPA was in their ruling where they actually wanted all of this to be met by natural gas and not renewables. I mean, they basically explicitly said that in the rule. But, you know, I think with David Crane's op-ed in Fortune magazine, which said that we shouldn't be overly reliant on natural gas, and frankly, that natural gas is such a volatile fuel, my sense is, is that this is a backhanded way to force states like Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and others to understand that we've already become the most cost-effective solution for them. And if they weren't so beset with inertia, they would get it. Yeah, but this is actually just complying with Clean Air Act regulations. I mean, there was a finding that carbon is a pollutant and EPA is, is has to, because of law, regulate anything that is found to be a pollutant, which it, this is. So it, they are required by law to do this. So in, in my mind, this is like the least political thing you can do. It's actually a requirement and it's their job to do it. Whereas if you tried to do, as, as we know, the cap and trade bill, um, the politics, while on the House side, we managed to get it through on the Senate side, it fell apart because the politics are just so bad on that. But this kind of, to me, removes it, although their politics are going to be screaming and jumping up and down loudly. I think this removes it one step from the political fray. 
I yeah, think- I agree with you completely, Catherine. I think that the renewable portfolio standard stuff that we've done is going to get enhanced greatly. And my sense is that SIA and AWIA in response to this are going to move away from the federal government and towards the state governments and use this rule as a way totally massage a lot of the compliance plans and others to you to comply with solar and wind as opposed to um you know natural gas yeah yes yeah there's an in here but in states with more modest reductions like montana and wyoming and kentucky they're probably gonna cycle plants differently they might use volt var optimization some demand side reductions i'm not convinced that there's going to be a huge role for clean tech in the states where, or clean energy generation in states where they're still going to be heavily dependent on coal and have more modest reductions. I, I don't necessarily see where the RPS model will fit in there when the reductions are fairly small compared to what other states have to do. And the EPA has said explicitly, yep, these states are going to rely on coal. We recognize that. So we're giving them the flexibility to still rely on coal. Yeah, but look at Texas. I mean, Texas has a 40% plus reduction. In the states that are actually big, that we actually need to, you know, to convert to really get a huge amount of renewables going, Texas has already done a bunch. I think they're going to do a way more because of this. I think that when you think about um, it, just I, I just think this is more, you know, sort of using jujitsu here as opposed to a full frontal attack. It's you know judo, I guess, is what it's called. It's like using the weight of your opponent, uh, um, you know, against them. I think that. Oh, the heavy-handed approach that the fossil fuel industry is going to use to prove that they're actually cost-effective and that we're really not cost-effective is going to backfire on them. And through this process, we are going to get a lot of enlightened people who right now are just reciting Fox News talking points. But you know, I think we'll become enlightened and go, damn, these guys are actually ready for prime time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the benefits, as EPA says, the benefits of that they predict of between 50 and $100 billion a year will far outweigh any costs. And I think the longer-term benefits um, environmentally and economically are certainly going to be even greater than that. Yeah. I'm a little skeptical of the cost-benefit analysis just because EPA is partly factoring in the reduced cost of extreme weather events into the benefits. And you know, it's pretty clear that these reductions, which are only a fraction of global carbon emissions, won't really reduce those impacts. That said, there are billions in saved health costs. And I think even without considering the hard to measure climate impact, the costs on utility bills likely won't be much because of the flexibility here and may even in some some states go down because of demand side reductions. Let's get into our last subject. 2014 is shaping up to be a breakout year for storage. New state procurement targets, improving regulations, steadily falling costs, and a range of commercial deployments of new technologies are all coming together for the industry. So when we consider the surge, is storage the new solar? Catherine and I were at the Energy Storage Association's annual conference last week, and uh, I think in a disclosure that proves her diversity and depth of knowledge in the space, I should mention that Catherine is the policy director for the Energy Storage Association. Um, So, Catherine, what, in your opinion, emerged as the most important theme or themes at the show as you were on panels and talking to people? Anything jump out for you? 
Yeah, I mean, the general vibe was so much more positive than it's ever been before. Um, you know, I just remember, you know, the last couple of years you would go and you would look at some of these guys who are innovators and their brows were all crinkled and they were going, oh, yeah, I'm waiting for that round of funding. And they're just all hanging on by their fingernails. And this year, people are saying, my project is working. It's operating. I'm figuring out ways to get paid. I raised another round of funding. Everything is good. I mean, there's still you're still getting bumps, but you're finding companies that even as they fail, like extreme power, they had such a good technology that Unicos bought it. So you know, you're seeing people, you know, acquisitions, mergers happening. I feel like the vibe itself is so much more positive for this industry. Yep, I felt the exact same thing. I was following the distributed side a little bit more this year, and I'm working on a feature on uh, solar storage integration. I loved Tom Werner's keynote. I talked to him before the keynote. He basically said what he's been saying in the press for the last couple of months, that um, they are really interested in becoming an energy services company by integrating storage. But he had some really interesting quotes in my interview with him. And he said, uh, you know, we think in the next five years, a lot of solar customers are going to start deciding what they pay the utility. And they're really interested in working with companies doing home energy management and holistically integrating storage. And one of the things that really jumped out at me was his comment that they want to partner with storage companies and want to invest in storage companies. So some pretty big plays on the solar side that I thought was uh, sort of driving some of the excitement at the conference. One thing I will say, and I'd love to hear Jigger's thoughts on this, SunPower has been talking about storage for like four or five years, and they haven't done much. They've got some new pilot programs. So a lot of it's talk still, but I do feel like there's a material change here, a real excitement that costs have come down enough that companies can really take this seriously. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've obviously been investing in the storage space for a couple of years now, and you know, pretty impressed by the folks that are there. My my general take on the distributed storage side is that the solar guys are really not going to be the leaders here. My sense is you're going to have storage only companies that really um, get the model right on the distributed solar uh, storage side, and then I think the solar companies are going to be forced to outsource the storage to those distributed storage companies. Because the problem that I find with the solar companies is that they keep looking at storage as a daytime to nighttime thing. They refuse to really embrace all of sort of, you know, FERC Order 755 stuff and all these other things. I think they just they just are not set up for it. They don't have full-time staff that are experts in the ISOs. And so I just think that the solar guys are deliberately going to be late to the game, and it's really going to be these pure play distributed solar companies, store, sorry, right. distributed storage companies that succeed. On the commercial side or residential side? Both. I think the, the solar guys are going to sell storage with their residential um, units, but that's a backup in case of Hurricane Sandy or something. There'll be a separate storage company that goes to those residential users and says, hey, I'd like to gang together all of your batteries and bid it into the ISO. I don't think SunPower, Sun Edison, or anybody else will be able to figure that stuff out. Yeah, I think on the business model side, you're right that they're, you know, FERC starting to open up all those ancillary services markets is really going to help. But what I'm hoping also on the distribution side is that the battery companies and other 
other storage companies will be able to learn from the solar industry and leapfrog over some of the barriers of soft costs that the solar guys have kind of tried to figure out uh, to be able to drive down the cost even more. Because I feel like that's been that's been so tough to get through. And if we can if we can figure out a way to, you know, to reduce permitting and all those those expenses, that'll really help these guys deploy. Mm hmm. Jigger, what do you think about solar grid storage? Because they're essentially working with the solar developer. They've got the storage expertise. Obviously, it's a company founded by people with deep ties in the solar industry, but they're actually working to bring the storage value to the solar developer. Is that what you're talking yep. about? Yeah. And so, I mean, for, you know, obviously, with full disclosure, I've invested in them. Um, and I, I love what they're doing. But I think that when you think about the challenges that they've had, um, some of the challenges with co-locating um, storage with solar is that if you're sharing an inverter, if it's super bright, sunny day, the inverter can ha- has to choose between solar and storage. It can't support both at the same time. And so, um, so if it's a super sunny day and you're in the middle of the polar vortex and the solar panels are using the inverter, then you know they can't use the storage to maximize the revenue from the PJM. And so a lot of these lessons are being learned full time, real time. And I just think that, you know, that if you're doing this part time, like some of the solar players are, you're not going to get it done. I think Tom Lydon and Chris Cook and all those guys who are doing solar grid storage, they're doing this full time. And so they're learning all these mistakes real time. And I think they're going to be able to learn from them and succeed. And you're right, probably provide real services to the solar industry. I just don't think you're going to see this as a profitable business unit of Solar City or a profitable business unit of SunPower. Yeah, and there are a lot of states. Uh, the panels that I was moderating and that I put together were policy panels, of course, and one of them was a state policy panel. And, you know, Hawaii, it's like they're changing the tires while the car is driving down the road. They are installing storage as fast as they can, given their what they're doing on renewables. And so they're way out there where they're installing even before they have any kind of policies really in place to do so. California has really strong policies in place, and they're they have, you know, the 1.3 gigawatt mandate that they're kind of working through. But then there are other states, and we had a commissioner from Maryland, who they're sort of in that still thinking about how they do it. And so those states are in a position to learn a lot from the folks that are really deploying like gangbusters right now um, and are really kind of bringing the the storage market to scale. Um, there's still a lot to do on the states that have not thought it through yet. You feel like we're hitting a new, new phase for the industry, Catherine? I do. I think I think we are. You know, there've been three orders out of FERC. Um, PJM is looking at a capacity market, trying to develop a tariff right now for energy storage, which uh, would be huge. Uh, so yes, I do think we're at a tipping point, and states are starting to think about making sure that it's included in an integrated resource planning. Um, and remember, with 111D, they got to do something to get you know, renewables and distributed resources out there and storage is poised to really uh, be a huge tool in that. Yep. Jigger, do you agree? Yeah, I think one of the things that is really interesting, though, is that AES has been making the case that we went all in on natural gas peaker plants in the 90s. And those peaker plants are basically bankrupting us around the country because people are paying capacity payments for them, but they're not actually being utilized very much. And that storage is much, much, much more cost effective than those peaker plants. So this is really a war between utility scale storage and peaker plants. Yeah, definitely. AES rolled out their modular lithium ion uh, units 
And, uh, you know, they're saying they can install those for $1,000 a kilowatt and, you know, like a peaker plant, maybe in the $1,200, $1,300 range. So they're saying they can be competitive with peakers today in these modular plants. Uh, yeah, and they, I think you know, that wanna... is especially pertinent when you look at increased demand. So rather than building peaker plants, thinking about using energy storage. But for the existing fleet, AES has done a lot to try, try to make the existing gas and coal fleet, they've, which they've worked with in Chile, um, more efficient, um, you know, increase the capacity factor of existing you know, existing fossil fuel plants to make them more efficient because, of course, energy storage can help them ramp better. So, you know, there's there's a little bit of both where you can you can help existing plants and then also prevent having to build a lot more in the future. All right. Well, let's wrap up the show. And uh, before we finish, we will tell our listeners something they don't know. Let's see. Who am I going to pick on? Uh, Jigger, do you have anything good this week? Anything interesting that you've seen in the news? Well, every year, REN21 puts out their annual report of, you know, really deep data on how much renewable energy was deployed globally. And so their 2013 report just came out and um, basically showed for the first time ever that we installed more solar than we installed wind energy uh, globally, which I thought was an interesting milestone, um, an interesting, um, uh, you know, narrative really about both solar and about wind. Incredible. A lot of people have been talking about that distributed crossover happening, and uh, here it is. Catherine, tell us something we don't know. So I have two very quick things. One is very wonky and one is very political. So the, on the wonky side, uh, I, I talked last time about Order 745, which was for demand response, and that the um, D.C. Circuit Court had vacated it. Well, FERC today decided to appeal it and bank, meaning all of the um, – they'll, they'll take it forward to appeal to all of the judges sitting on the bench. So I think that's a really good step. I think it was really, really important for FERC to say they were going to appeal um, – um, remember, in PJM alone, 10,000 megawatts of demand response just cleared. That's like 13 new coal-fired power plants. So so if you think about um, having to go forward in a carbon-constrained environment, um, keeping Order 745 and demand response intact is going to be really important. And my other thing is very political, which is because I'm from Virginia, I have to mention uh, the surprise of Eric Cantor um, losing in his primary to a guy uh, who's a professor at Randolph-Macon College, which happened to be my dad's alma mater. Um, and this guy was got no Tea Party money, although he sort of espouses Tea Party um, philosophies. He's an economics professor, David Bratt, and he's going to be running against a Democrat who is also a professor at Randolph-Macon College. Who knew? A professor of sociology, Jack Trammell. So it'll be really interesting to watch this race, which is uh, a complete surprise and shock to the House of Representatives. Yeah, and well, the dynamics here are interesting because people expect someone to replace John Boehner, Speaker of the House, soon. They were expecting it might be Eric Cantor. So now that position is open. And broadly speaking, this just makes establishment Republicans that much more fearful of their jobs and pushes them further to the right and... uh, doesn't uh, bode well for clean tech and climate issues in the House. Yeah, well, Cantor well, just resigned his leadership position, too, today as a result. Well, look, I mean, you know, Speaker Boehner just lost his second closest ally. Now he can cut a deal with uh, his first closest ally, President Obama. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I've got a story that uh, I think shows how bizarre some people's attitudes are on climate change. This week, Robert Murray, the founder of Murray Energy Corp., the largest privately owned coal company in the U.S., 
said that he wants to sue the EPA, no surprise there, for violating the Data Quality Act uh, when it comes to the new carbon regulations. And he said that because of his belief that global warming is a hoax and that the world is actually cooling, the EPA should be taken to court. And the company did say that it plans to sue any day now. And I have to say, stories like this one particularly really test my ability to be fair in describing someone's character. Uh, This is pretty far into the crazy zone, and it's fitting that grist reporters who are very snarky, continually refer to Robert Murray as the comically evil coal boss when they report on his uh, recurring shenanigans. So I thought it was uh, an interesting story, and unfortunately, you know, as bizarre as Robert Murray's views are, they represent uh, a large number of public figures. That is our show for the week. Thank you for joining us once again. For links to some of the stories we discussed on the show, head on over to our podcast page at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. There you can find a link to my new ebook, which I hope you will read. While you're doing that, leave us some comments, subscribe to the show, rate us uh, on your favorite podcast app, send a link to your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much to eGage for sponsoring the show. We really appreciate their support. And thanks to my co-hosts as well. Catherine Hamilton, appreciate your insights this week. Oh, love to be here as always. Jigger, same to you. Maybe I'll bump into you on the streets of D.C., but uh, <laughs> if I don't see you, have a good trip back to New York. Thanks, and congratulations on a fantastic ebook. Thanks a lot. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, we are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. 